0: If you're like me, there are times when we come together, and quite often is the case, that we sing these songs about heaven and about God's kingdom and about our role in serving him, and you just are disappointed that the singing has come to an end. Ironically, no one's ever disappointed when the sermon comes to an end. (laughs) But it is important for us to engage in singing good songs that remind us of the fact that Our Savior had everything in heaven, and he left those ivory palaces coming to a world of woe, and he did so because he loves you and because he loves me. And that, as we often say, makes all the difference. And you are here tonight because apparently you think those things are important too. You believe that biblical, spiritual, and uh, in, 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 in moral things are of value. And therefore, you've come with us tonight to study from God's Word, and that's the Bible. And we're going to study together, and I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to focus just on two little verses tonight, midway through the very brief letter that Peter wrote. Glad you're here tonight, as was mentioned by Brother Cameron, we are blessed with visitors and we appreciate your encouragement to us today and this evening. There are some things that would just be awkward in life if you were to enter the building tonight and we shake hands and I say, well, it's good to see you, you're looking very good tonight, you look very attractive tonight, you might raise an eyebrow and then if someone were to come up to me and say, well, you look very attractive, well, I'd be used to that, Uh, but... No, I, I wouldn't be. That'd be awkward, too. But uh, if we were to call ourselves one another, you look very attractive. You're, you're very attractive in the way that you look. You might say, what in the world is going on? This is just getting weird. And it went from weird to weirder very quickly. But I want to end tonight where we begin with this idea of attractiveness by saying that I think you are all very attractive, And I hope that I am attractive as well, maybe in a slightly different way. We know that the Lord does not look at the outside of a man, and for that, we are all grateful, and that he doesn't judge the proverbial book by the cover, and that he looks at our hearts, and that he wants a heart that even in spite of the fact that we may not be physically attractive to ourselves, maybe we would like to have better health or better financial outcomes, Whatever the case may be, we can be attractive to our Lord. And even more important in terms of the point that we're trying to make in our study together tonight, attractive to others. And the word attractive is a very powerful word. It's the idea of trying to bring someone or to draw someone in as a moth to the flame, you might say. But this idea seems to be found here in the middle of Peter's first letter. Even though he doesn't talk about looking attractive, it seems he's saying be attractive to one another and to the world in general. And so, what I want us to do is to read these two verses and then to make a a series of about a half a dozen observations. And I mentioned this just a couple of weeks ago in a sermon that 1 Peter, to me, is one of the most uh, easily outlined sermon-preachable books in all the New Testament. And we're going to use it as our outline tonight. And so, here he says, finally... Which is, going back to sermons, one of the favorite words of of an audience in a preacher's sermon. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, and be courteous. And then he spends an entire verse rather than a section of a verse dealing with the final subject of our study together tonight, not returning evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. When I read those verses, I think of the idea of attractiveness and who we are as Christians. When Peter gets to this point of the letter, it seems to me that it's not so much the end of his letter. He's only halfway through, but rather it seems that he's taking the last couple of paragraphs and saying, now that I've talked about these very important subjects, I want to move to the last section of the letter and for example if you're familiar with the way that first peter is structured chapters 2 and chapters 3 are very practical in how we view government for example and it has a very romans 13 feel to it and it goes back to our bible class just this past wednesday evening it talks about how we view our employers or masters in the first century when you had slavery that was a uh, a component of the culture and thirdly how we view our spouses, the first seven verses of chapter three. And so what he seems to be suggesting here is that if we deal with the government in appropriate ways, deal with our employers in appropriate ways, and deal with our spouses in appropriate ways, which are really the three big areas of our life that all of us have some sort of uh, relationship with and relationship to, that we will have the necessary application of attraction to the world that is around us. We want to attract people by the way that we talk about the government. And as Brother uh, Allen talked about in our Bible class this past Wednesday evening, we don't have to always agree with the things that our uh, political leaders tell us to do or suggest for us to do, but there's a responsible way of dealing with uh, that and honoring the king as the text says. And when it comes to our employers, we may not always agree with what our employers do, uh, but we we are submissive to them. And we may have disagreements with our family members, with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, but we do our very best to do so in a way that shows the world that we are different. So I want to use verses eight and nine and just spend three to five minutes on each of these five or six things that Peter Nicely outlines for us and then conclude with this idea that if we do these things, we will be like that light or that flame to the moth we will be that attractiveness that others will see we are different, but that requires us to make a sacrifice because the things that we're talking about tonight are either altogether challenging to accomplish, or you may say a couple of them are relatively easy for me, but there's one or two that are really challenging for me. So number one is he says, be of one mind. If you're reading from the New American Standard Bible tonight, it's the idea of harmonious. We all know what a harmony is, and we know what it, what happens when you are not in a harmonious relationship. It's the idea idea of nails on the chalkboard it's the concept of notes that are just a little bit off-tune and it just makes you cringe a little bit we are to be of one mind and this is a, a slightly a word study of the New Testament as much as a more uh, expository sermon of these two verses but I thought that it was interesting and you'll see me mention this now five or six times in the course of our of our study tonight and that is This is the only time this word, this particular word in the Greek is used in the New Testament. I thought that was kind of interesting. And that Peter says here halfway through his letter, as he kind of wraps up this first section about how we interact with government, how we interact with our spouses, how we interact with employers, how we interact with the world about us, that we are to try to be harmonious with one another. Consider, if you would, for just a moment, what the Lord does not require of us as Christians, because I think that's important to make sure that we don't misunderstand what Peter is telling us to do here, and more broadly and more importantly, what the Holy Spirit is uh, is telling us to do. First of all, we don't have to be clones of one another. Consider the apostles. I mean, you had a tax collector, you had fishermen, you had people that were asking to call down thunder and lightning and to uh, exterminate others. You had a whole collection of individuals. You had a zealot who, as one preacher said, he was the kind of guy that would chop off someone's head if he had the opportunity to do so in the name of the cause that he was fighting for. And so you have this, this, this collection of people that are all different. And when you think about the church universal, and when you think about this church as a congregation, we are not clones of one another. Not a single one of us is the same. And that's a good thing. We are all different. We all have our different talents, our different abilities, the different things that we do in building one another up in the faith. Let me also suggest to you that he does not ask us to be a church uh, void of individual differences. We have our differences of opinion on things that do not matter to God. And there's a variety of thoughts about certain things that we will sometimes disagree about, but we do so in an agreeable fashion. And let me also suggest to you, thirdly here, that God sees great wisdom in there being those different people making up the whole. David made reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 in his good sermon this morning. The idea there where Paul likes to use as one of his favorite analogies, a body with all the different members. And the older we get, the more we appreciate the fact that when one of the members of our body hurts, it affects the whole of the body. And so, someone was asking me this morning uh, if I had arthritis, and I I thought, well, how old do you think I am? No. But I'm I'm thankful that I I, I don't. But there are a lot of you that do have chronic aches and pains and serious ailments that you deal with. And I know my time is coming. I know it's down the road, and don't don't wish it on me. Uh, But that point number six, by the way, don't wish evil on someone else, but the point that I'm trying to make simply is this, is that when when your hands hurt, or, or when your feet ache, or when your back aches, everything is impacted. Even if it's just stubbing your toe, your whole body feels that for the next 10 minutes as you wince in pain. And so when one of us hurts, we all hurt. That's the way the body is designed. And so when you lose your job, or when you lose a parent, or when something bad happens in your family, or when you are struggling spiritually, we are all in this thing together. God doesn't require those things, but God does require, it seems to me, two things in terms of an effort for us to be harmonious or to be of one mind. One is an understanding that there is absolutely no room for negotiation when it comes to matters of doctrine. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, when it comes to the one church and its identity, when it comes to the the profession of Jesus as the only Christ, the Son of the living God, these are not negotiables, and we won't sit here and have a conversation and say, well, let's, let's think about the doctrine for a moment and maybe change some things or update or, or polish it for the 21st century. I find it amazing that denominations have these conferences every year or every couple of years where they come together and they debate their doctrine and they, they, they issue uh, Church 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0, the idea being that this is our new set of beliefs and doctrines. We don't do that. I was recently studying with someone and I said, I cannot take you in this building, in this facility, or show you on our website what our doctrine is, except to take you to God's word. It's the only thing that I can share with you because this is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It's his teachings. And so I, I can't take you to a handbook that our elders have crafted and that they 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 edit every once in a while and, and put out for our, I don't know where that book is. I haven't seen it. I don't think it exists because this is the doctrine by which we live. And so we have to have a dedication to the doctrine. But secondly, let me appreciate with you a refusal to allow differences in opinion to cause us to lose our focus. And I think, in my humble opinion, speaking of opinions, that if we can make it through the last two and a half to three years We can make it through a lot of things because there were differences of opinion when it came to how we deal with a a pandemic or how we deal with a virus, how we deal with sickness, how we deal with issues of public safety. But you know, the first century had their fair share of differences as well when it came to meet. Sacrifice to idols, days that were important to the Jews that weren't important to the Greeks. And these are things that we've got to understand have been around for thousands of years, wherein individuals in the church have their differences, but yet they learn to work together with one another. If you go back and read John chapter 17, all 20-some verses, you will see harmony in Jesus's wish list of the things that he hoped for among his people. And we need to, let me suggest you, exercise extreme caution when assuming a brother's motives. Well, he said this, therefore he must not like me well, that may not be the case. Maybe he said that because that's his real belief or that's her real belief. There's so much I could say about that, but I wanted to throw that in there just because I've, I've, I heard that years ago from, a, from an older, wiser preacher, uh, and I thought that was important. And we could talk about that more. Maybe we'll do so in the future. Number two, be of one mind. Number two, be compassionate. The word compassionate here, again, in the New American Standard, is the word sympathetic, and we know what it means to be sympathetic. When someone says, "Well, I sympathize with you," uh, and we know that there is a slight difference between that and being empathetic with one another, but both of them have the idea of I feel for you, and I don't, and I'm not happy that you're going through this particular challenge. And it is the only time that this particular word is utilized. In the New Testament, every Christian, each saint, must show compassion because every saint or Christian will at some point need compassion shown to him or her. Think about that for a moment. If you are unwilling to show grace, compassion, sympathy, empathy, whatever word you want to use, and I know there's some variations uh, and differences of those words, but if you're willing to, to feel for another person, then what's going to happen when you need someone to feel for you? And when you think about people that are attractive in the world, and I'm not talking about physically, obviously, I'm talking about people who are just, they're good people that you like being around, and saints that you admire, they are typically sympathetic, compassionate, and kind in this way. We are to obey the teachings of Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Romans chapter 12 is probably, uh, at least it seems to me, one of the uh, key passages in understanding what it means to conduct yourself as a child of God. And he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Paul, by the way, is not suggesting that this is how we engage with one another. And the word suggest there is the optimum word because he's not suggesting it saying, well, this is just something that you do if you feel like it would work out well for you. But rather, I want you and the Holy Spirit is directing you to do this. Let me ask this question. I've asked this question at least once in the course of our time together over the last few years, but why is showing sympathy so challenging? You may say, well, it's not challenging for me. Well, good for you. There are certain people that it is challenging for, to show that kind of sympathy. Let me suggest to you that one of the reasons why I think it is so challenging is that we've got to acknowledge that one of Satan's most effective tools is envy, revenge, vindictiveness, which we'll talk about at the close of our study together this evening. Let me suggest to you this, that rejoicing with those who rejoice is tough when you're not really happy for them. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm always happy for my brethren. Well, are we? What about when you take a pay cut of 10% and you've got to tighten that belt, and then Brother Smith Two weeks later, shows up in a brand new shiny car that he paid cash for. Are you happy for him? What about me? I, I, I'm struggling. I'm happy for my brother. That's in a very materialistic, specific way, let alone the spiritual ways in which others are to rejoice when you are doing well spiritually. What about me? I'm struggling spiritually. Remember Luke chapter 15, verse 28, in the story of the forgiving father, the prodigal son, and the son that was the elder, the older son, the new King James says, was angry. He was not compassionate. He was not sympathetic. And let me suggest to you that weeping with those who weep is tough when we're upset that they may get all the attention. Because if someone is weeping over the loss of someone that they have cared about or because of their financial situation, or they're weeping uh, in the ultimate way because they've they've done wrong, they're going to get a lot of attention. They're going to take up a lot of resources. And that's okay because that's where the attention needs to be. Go back to verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another and then he says thirdly i want you to love as brothers this is a point that may not make sense to those of you that are younger who have siblings what do you mean you must you mean you mean to love others the way that i love my brothers <laughs> well it makes more sense as we grow a little bit older and we get a little more mature but loving as brothers is the idea of treating one another in the way that we would want ourselves to be also treated. And when you think about Christians loving one another as we love our siblings, this is again the only time this particular word or phrase is used in the New Testament. Literal brothers and literal sisters have a very natural connection. And it's such that it stings when you lose that connection. And this is a group of people That is not void to family challenges where your siblings and you may not have the best of relationships, and that hurts because we miss that natural connection that we otherwise want to share. But we as spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters, as spiritual siblings, are to work towards that goal. And it goes back to the point that David made this morning, the idea of growth and the idea of maturity. And it reminds me of Ephesians chapter four, where the text says that we are to grow up into all things that are Jesus Christ, our Lord. Note, if you would, that the command To love is centered between the other four commands. So, if you look at this in terms of how they're structured, at the very middle of the other four commands, there are five positive things to do as I count them in 1 Peter 3 8 and 9, or 1 Peter 3 8. And then there's one negative, one flip side, don't do this. And he gives a full verse to that particular point. Love, it seems to me, based on what the Holy Spirit has constructed for us, is truly the central component of New Testament Christianity. You say, well, of course it is. But have you ever really thought about what that means? It is indeed a sacrificial agape love that requires us to have a a attention to one another. And let me suggest to you and how fitting it is. I didn't plan this particular sermon, given the nature of the special announcement that Cameron provided for us. And I appreciate so much the work that you all are doing for our brethren that uh, may be coming back home to us soon. And I certainly appreciate the work that our shepherds are doing. But in order to effectively love as brothers... We've got to have a relationship with the individual that feels loved. And that's true of the one that we've spoken of tonight. It's true of every person that is here and every person that used to be here. And it's easy. And I'll confess, it's easy for me. And if it's easy for me, I'm hoping that it's easy for you, that I'm not the only one who falls into the trap to forget about people or to lose sight of them or they can fall through the cracks But we as a church cannot let that happen. I was actually having a conversation with a lady uh, just a few weeks ago, and she was a part of a larger denomination, and uh, the church where she was was over a 1,000 people. And she was really off-put and stopped going to church altogether, and so that was... The open door for me that I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through that door and see if I can do something here. Her mother died, and she's only in her 30s, so her mother would have been relatively young to, to pass away of some sort of disease or ailment. And she says, you know how many people from the 1,100, 1,200 people in the church contacted me about my mother dying? Zero. And she was hurt by that. And I, my response to her was, I, I'm sorry that that happened. That should not happen in a church of 11 people or a church of 1,100 people. Now, there may be more to the story. There may be more context that I don't know about. There's always those three sides to the story his side, her side, and then the, the truth, right? But, but I would like to think, and if, no, I know that if that would have happened in this congregation, And in any congregation of the people of the Lord who are truly trying to achieve 1 Peter 3 verses 8 and 9, that would not happen. And that can't happen. And we can't ever think that someone else will love them. I have to be the one to love them as well. In order to effectively love his brothers, a relationship is required, and so attendance regularly is a must. And when that doesn't happen, the relationship is either severed or at least is strained. Sacrifice is a must, and effort or time is a must as well. Well, let's uh, go to number four here in First Peter chapter three and verse eight, where he says, "I want you to be tender-hearted. Christians are to be, according to the New American standard, kind-hearted, or to be pitiful." And that has to be filled with pity. And this word is used only twice in the New Testament. The other occasion is in Paul's very powerful fourth chapter uh, of the letter to the Ephesians in verse 32, where he says, be kind to one another. And he says, I want you to be tender-hearted to one another. Sometimes others may actually perceive being kind as a sign of weakness. Well, he's kind, she's kind, Uh, maybe they're a pushover because of their overt kindness. We throw that away, remove that completely, and remember, as one of our members signs all of her uh, email communication with simply, kindness matters. And I think that's very right to be said. The original word for tenderhearted actually means to be courageous. And so it's not the idea of being a weak pushover. For you to be kind and tenderhearted and considerate of others is actually a sign of your courage and your boldness. So think about that the next time someone thinks you're a pushover because you're too kind. No, I'm just a courageous person in service to my king. In fact, a weak Christian is one who doesn't care at all. So it's the flip side of the argument. Let me suggest to you on this idea of being tenderhearted that Peter uses a fifth term where he says, I want you to be courteous to one another. These are all things that we are doing so that we glow in a world filled with darkness, that we are attractive in a world filled with all kinds of unattractive behaviors and ways of doing things. Christians are in the new American standard to be humble in spirit. We don't use those words together too much these days, but you guessed it, this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Christian humility should be a natural offshoot of what it means to put on Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of what Paul says to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter two, where in the first three to four verses, he talks about having the mind of Christ, verse five, of humility. And then in verse eight, as you drop down in the text, he simply says, he was found in the appearance as a man and he humbled himself when he became obedient to the point of death, even. Even the death on the cross. So let me just put it to you straight and, and put it to you this way, that if Jesus Christ was courteous to the very people who were responsible for putting him on the cross, putting the nails in his hand, there's absolutely no excuse for us to never be uncourteous or to fail at extending that. So, well, those things are easy. Well, if those things are easy for you, then I'm, I'm glad because of those five things, at least one or two of them I struggle with on occasion. But there's a sixth thing and final thing, and the Holy Spirit gives an entire half of a sentence, at least in the way that we've structured it in English, in one verse, and that is in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 3, where he says, and don't be vindictive. A whole verse is dedicated to this, and whoever designed the chapters and the verses I thought did a nice job by giving a verse just to this one concept. After dwelling on the various aspects that make a Christian so attractive, because let's face it, when you deal with people uh, who are harmonious, compassionate, loving, tenderhearted and courteous, you say, I like those people. Those are people that I want to spend time with or that I want my children associated with. After spending so much time on that, Peter says vengefulness cannot be a part of the mix at all. There are two important ways of looking, it seems to me, at the command in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. One of those is simply this, and that is don't take revenge on the world. And that's hard to do. And I'll, I'll tell you, that is hard sometimes for me. I, I, don't, I don't go around breaking people's windshield wipers. Um, I, I knew a sister in Christ who, she would always ask me, can I break the windshield wipers? And I said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> she got upset, she wanted to know what she wanted to do. <laughs> when you're driving, when you're walking, when you're providing customer service to people in the world, When you're interacting with customers, when you're interacting with uh, you as the customer and you're dealing with someone who doesn't get what you're saying on the phone, it is hard sometimes not to say, well, let's make sure they get what's coming to them. Whenever we get to the point where we are vindictive, where we say, I sure hope something bad happens to them, it's the whether we say that or we think that, we've got to stop and think about would Jesus have thought that way? Or more importantly, did Jesus think that way? And he didn't. Because even on the cross, what did he say there? Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they are doing. When suffering persecution, we are not to retaliate. And Peter would have known this firsthand We don't know exactly how Peter died, though there is secular history that suggests he died in a very violent and horrible way, most likely as did the other earlier followers of Jesus who were martyrs for the cause. But Peter and Paul and James and John would have known about the struggles associated with faithful service to the Lord. And when someone is mean to you, the world says, be mean back. But that's not what being a Christian is about. And I know that I'm talking to a group of Christians who have a lot of spiritual maturity. But I also know I'm talking to Christians who share one thing in common. And that is we are all human beings. And as a result, the temptation to strike back is real. And there will be an occasion, I guarantee you, out of 150 to 180 people that are here over the course of today, I guarantee you that sometime in the next seven days, maybe less, there's going to be an opportunity for you to be vindictive, for you to fight back, strike back, or talk back. And we've got to refrain. Those aren't my pieces of advice or my counsel. That's what the Holy Spirit has to say. A second thing to think about is this. Don't take revenge on your brethren. You may say, well, wait a minute. Why would I ever have an occasion to take revenge on my brethren? Well, if you've been a Christian long enough, if you are old enough You have seen ugly circumstances wherein brothers and sisters bicker and fight with one another and churches are either split in two or almost split in two, where elders are called in, where preachers are consulted, where older members are are brought in to help with this particular situation. There are some ugly things that have happened in the 2,000 years of the history of the New Testament church. And I know that because in 40-some years, I've seen a lot of ugly things happen. I've seen more beautiful things happen than ugly things. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to paint a bad picture. But I've seen some horror stories of what's happened in churches. And it's not right. It's not good. It's not encouraging. And unfortunately, there are going to be those times when a brother or a sister treats another brother or sister badly. Let me suggest to you that you consider two things on this particular subject. Number one, don't speak badly about someone else because he or she spoke badly about you. Elementary school taught me that. The Bible taught me that before elementary school got a hold of me, but... but in our cafeteria, you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. And Just because someone says something mean to you doesn't give you the right to say something mean about them or behind their back. And then not just speaking, but don't act badly unbecoming of a christian towards someone else because he or she acted badly towards you and that's why i asked for us to read luke chapter six verses 32 and following in the text this this evening and i appreciate us being able to read from those verses which actually i was recently studying with someone that was a, a relatively new christian in uh this congregation and the idea is love your enemies and do good he says be merciful like your father in heaven is merciful as well. Sometimes that's easy. And sometimes that's downright difficult. But we've got the responsibility of being the attractive Christian. I would argue that when you think about the attractiveness of a Christian, that God designed it so that Christians are attractive. And so, throw awkwardness aside, I'm just going to say I'm looking out at a group of people, who are very attractive. And I hope that when others in the world see you, they say, you're attracting me to something. You are reflecting Jesus Christ because when we choose to not fulfill the five things that are essential to being Christians and then choose to be vindictive and to be mean, there is absolutely no way that we will be successful in attracting people to Jesus Christ. And that's what this whole message has been about. Someone said when they found out what the title of my sermon was, I bet you're talking about me because they saw it was about an attractive Christian. Yes, I am. I'm talking about you and you and you, all of us, we are to be attractive, to be people that cause others to say, there's something different. And just as we read in Titus chapter two, verse 14, in our Lord's Supper talk this morning, we indeed are to be a people who are special, zealous for good works, and peculiar in a world filled with all kinds of evil. I hope that these things will be helpful. And I hope that you will say, I want to be more attractive than I've ever been before by putting these five things into practice and then spending a few moments thinking and and pondering on the fact that I will never be vindictive. It's a lot of things to think about. And I hope that it's helpful to you tonight. If you are a child of God and maybe you have uh, allowed two of these components of attractiveness to kind of get lost somehow in your behavior, in your speech, maybe in your thinking uh, and thought process. We want to encourage you to come home. Maybe you need to just come home because you've not been home in a while and you need to make a correction in your life. Jesus, as we'll sing, is standing at the door. He's knocking. He's wanting to come into your life. He's wanting you to respond. If you are not a Christian, please consider becoming one tonight. As David said this morning, I want to echo this point. There is not a time of the day or a time of the week that you couldn't call on one of us or numerous others, and we wouldn't assist you with your spiritual needs. And there have been people who have been baptized at 2.30 in the morning, and that's Okay. Except for the fact that we're not guaranteed that 2.30 on June 5th is going to come around. And so why not make that commitment tonight to become a Christian or to make your life right with God? If we can help you in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.